Hey everyone, it's Marvin. Uh, this episode of the Good Pop Culture Club is brought to you by Audible Presents Good Enemy, a new play by Yilong Liu, directed by Che Yu, playing now at the Manetta Lane Theater in New York City. The play is about a father who learns that closing the door on his past means shutting his daughter out. When Howard makes a surprise cross-country trip to see his college-aged TikTok-loving daughter, he's forced to confront the realities of the relationship and the rift between them, a rift caused by Howard's own refusal to face memories of his life as a young man in China. In a smart, thrilling story that deftly weaves together two generations and two continents amidst sweeping social change, Good Enemy explores the power of human connections, affirming that no one lives an ordinary life, no matter how hard they try. The New York Times cheers with a serious mind, an inventive spirit, and a goofball heart. Good Enemy is a melange of a play about getting a second chance and being wise enough to grab it. The play is in its final weeks of production and must end on November 27th. So if you're interested and in New York City, you can learn more and get your tickets now at goodenemyplay.com. And just for good pop listeners, you can get 25% off your tickets by using the discount code GPCC25. Again, that's goodenemyplay.com with discount code GPCC25. And now, the show. You're listening to... Whoa! Hot luck. And what is poppin' everybody? It is Thanksgiving 2023. You are listening to episode 130 of the Good Pop Culture Club. My name is Marvin Yue, and joining me as always to talk about all the good pop that gets us through the holidays, we have formerly self-proclaimed professional Asian American, Just You. Gobble, gobble, Marvin. Gobble, gobble. <laughs> <laughs> it's Thanksgiving. You, I guess... I forget we're on the podcast, but I'm dancing right now because I love Thanksgiving. It's about eating and nothing else. It's are you great. cooking? Are you cooking anything? Actually, this year I am not. Thank <gasps> God. So I'm just gonna order like one of those meals, and I'm be like, I'm done. So I'm very <laughs> excited. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's all about eating because, um, as I guess Asian Americans, we don't really celebrate the part that's you know reminisces about cultural and indigenous genocide right oh yeah that part's terrible but you know eating and like getting a good deal or two on the shopping it's it's america baby consumers and capitalism we do celebrate that here yes we all know that the pilgrim story they fed us was a lie (laughs) um if you want to go on a deep dive oh man involves like cannibalism is wild but uh yeah let's just focus on the food and the family and the shop the sales yeah also joining us, having almost what seems like the busiest holidays of all of us, <laughs> professional culture editor Han Win. Hey, Han. Hey. How's um? You, you, you sound you, defeated. You seem to be on um holiday editor duty, which seems like it's. It. I mean, it's not really because I'm not working during the holiday. But here's the thing: for a four day weekend, that means you still need everything covered. So you're editing four days worth of stories, but your writers only had three days to write them, plus the the stuff during the day. <laughs> so I mean, I feel bad for them, but I also feel bad for myself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, content doesn't sleep or take holidays because we all need to consume shit. While we're on vacation. More than ever when you're trying to avoid <laughs> yeah. shitty family situation. Th- yeah. Th- this is one of those times where I was like, yeah, one day I'm going to leave journalism, especially this online entertainment shit, because people always want to be entertained. And, and now there's more TV than ever and movies and books and everything else. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm still just uh, trying just... to figure out where everyone's going after Twitter, because it seems like it's about... Oh. It's it, it's feel like it's been it's been about to go for like a week now. Yeah, I I apparently need to join Hive Social too. So uh, since Mastodon just refuses to let me in, I'm going to. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. I will look at these uh, this other one. But right now, I'm still on Twitter. So it does kind of feel like the Wild West days of like MySpace, mm-hmm. Friendster, Facebook before Facebook. Oh yeah, ate everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Or or Asian Avenue or 
I did I did see a I did see a post where someone was like, you know, millennials are uniquely situated. We've seen the downfall of so many social mm-hmm. media sites already. We're like, well, this is just another one. R.I.P. Vine, but Twitter just you know Twitter just, was not- different. Nowhere else like Twitter. I mean no. we've yeah. had, I mean we've had to say goodbye to what Zanga, Blockspot, MySpace. MySpace AIM, but here's the, th- the original the, yeah. social network. I think I think AIM for, for is probably the closest thing because I have to say Twitter isn't failing because it's a bad platform, but because of who's running mismanagement. It. <laughs> right, right. And, and it's so actually- quickly. So there was no natural peter out. Yeah. It, it it it's become like an essential tool. And so that's what's making it kind of more heartbreaking because it's like it's not just a social place, but like you get yeah. news from it. And it's kind of dying because of a self-own, right? It's dying because yeah. of capitalism. A billionaire decided he wanted to buy something, decided he didn't want to. But because of laws, now he has to because of capitalism. And, like, this is a guy who, like, doesn't really do hands-on management anyways, right? I don't think he's actually running any of these other companies. But I guess Twitter is his identity now. And we're realizing in real time that these um, tech billionaires probably don't have good management skills. Gee, you think? (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) Oh, well. We're not here today to lament the fall of Twitter in real time. Uh, we're here to celebrate the most iconic of Thanksgiving traditions, Christmas shit. Because <laughs> we all know that the Christmas creep is real and ever encroaching on the rest of the year. So this week we're checking out the Hallmark Christmas movie, Christmas at the Golden Dragon. One of Hallmark's Asian-American-led films um, this Christmas season that just premiered last week. Which seems pretty early for a Christmas movie, in my opinion. Oh no. Christmas movies start in October now. Before Halloween. That's crazy. (laughs) Well, it was also my first Hallmark movie and I have so many questions. But before we get to that, let's find out what pop culture is picking us through this Thanksgiving week. Uh, let's start with Jess. What's popping? Well, mine and Hans, I guess this week it might is a, is a joint. What's popping, right? So we were very fortunate. Oh, and I was extremely fortunate to be invited by Han to go see Elton John perform at I the Dodger State. That two of my co-hosts <laughs> went to the Elton John concert together. <laughs> Awkward. Ooh. Oh no, did I leave my oven on? <laughs> yeah, so we went to the farewell from Dodger Stadium. And granted, he's been on the farewell tour for like the last 10 years, but mm-hmm. apparently he's he's keeps saying this is gonna be his last ever concert in the United States. He wants to slow down and retire to spend more time with his family and his children, which you know, you go, Elton John, you have been entertaining us for 50 something years just hit after hit just you you do what makes you happy sir and it was super fun um you know he played all the hits but not gonna the people watching was Mm -hmm. just as entertaining as the show um it was disclaimer very white (laughs) <laughs> like very white, which is perhaps not surprising, but it's like very strange to see like boomer aged um white people like lose their absolute shit and <laughs> yes. dance like you know like like I saw some grandmas hoeing it up like i like like i I could see it, I could see the like uh the like the vibes. Not not a rhythm between them, but just vibes. Uh, they were having a real good time. Were they down like bad? Like a really good time. Down bad, which is really funny because I don't, you know, to me, Elton John has always been the kooky, gay showman. Never a sex symbol. <laughs> I wouldn't even say he's a rock star, right? Even though right. he is a rock star. Like, you know, by the time I was born, you know, Elton John was safe. And he mm-hmm. was oldies and he was classic, mm-hmm. uh, easy listening. So, you know, but it's hard to kind of fathom that, you know, he was like so boundary pushing, uh, even though his music is is still great is and has always been great. So I'm just like, well, like, all right. All right, Karen. All right, Dorothy. I see you getting down like you. You you would have given it all. You probably did. <laughs> Yeah, it it was it was interesting because you've never seen so many sequins 
um, feather boas, uh, blinged out glasses. It was very Harry Styles esque, but like uh-huh. on sixty to eighty year olds. Yeah, lots of walkers, all sorts of body types, which was great. Yeah. You know, you do it. Um, but I think the other thing was, well, there were maybe a couple of things. Was they had like a, a a music video alongside the live stream screens that were up there, and one of the videos was like Benetton. Oh <laughs> How do we describe this? Yeah, so there was like graphic visuals produced for the concert, I assume, and it was like young ethnic. <laughs> <laughs> multicultural gay it's like young those gap people ads. yeah like in black and white wearing like these white shirts but projected on the white shirts were like portraits john and, john and yoko and malcolm others. x <laughs> rosa parks it was it was very um interesting interesting enough for han and i to both <laughs> note it and and I don't know if we were chuffed or guffed. It's like uh, points, I guess, for trying to multiculturalize your concert here, Um, knowing who your clientele is going to be. Let's see. What's the other thing? Oh, you know, uh, I always just like seeing what the individual things for concerts are. So this one, they gave you a little wristband um, with lights that were... uh, programmed and timed and everything like that so to do different colors and different blinking um sort of patterns so being able to look out in the stadium and seeing like the sort of coordinated color show was fun and seeing it on your own wrist was fun yeah i mean say what you will about elton john um both his songs and his vibes are all all timers and influencing artists even today i mean even in today's top 40, I think there's like two songs that either feature samples of his music or him literally on the track. So that's pretty cool that you both got to go see his final concert in, in L.A. at least. All right. So <laughs> um, what else is popping with you, Han? Yeah. Besides finishing 1899, by the way, which um, I, I was on a mission to so I wouldn't be spoiled. I also took one for the team and watched Mind Your Manners, <laughs> which... <laughs> Which is a, a a Netflix, I guess, experiment. But basically, uh, it's an etiquette show. It was only six episodes. Um, and, and each episode is, I believe, like half an hour or so. But it felt longer. Uh, <laughs> so the concept is, is there's this etiquette expert. Her name is Sarah Jane Ho. And she has a bit of an accent. So I'm assuming maybe she grew up somewhere else that's not America. <laughs> um, and she definitely speaks... You would have to tell me, like, probably Mandarin, I'm, I think. Um, but each episode, she has one sort of, like, guest client who needs something, you know, uh, in particular, like, let's say they need a makeover or there's a stay-at-home mom who wants to enter the workforce again because her kids are getting older. Um, or this uh, a white guy with a, an Asian fetish wants to learn how to date. <laughs> uh, so each client... Most of the time it's fine because she usually does try to get to the heart of like maybe what's blocking them. So sometimes there's a few tearful moments where, you know, they realize there's either some trauma or some sort of like psychological stuff holding them back. Um, but like one one um, one party girl who whose parents wanted her to be classier, um, it it one of the reasons why she kept showing so much skin was because, you know, when she was younger, she had eczema. And so now she feels like, you know, whatever skin she can show, that's what she's going to do. So I'm not trying to take away from some of the heartwarming sort of breakthroughs that happened. But like, let's say when it came to a white guy who had an Asian fetish, there was no heartwarming stuff for me. (laughs) Uh, He was just, well, it was interesting because. Wait, what is, what was he, what was his, um, what was his deal? On the show. That's the problem. I couldn't really figure out. Like, I think he just wanted to learn how to date better. Um, He was 20 somethings and they they were very hazy about where any of these people lived because uh, (laughs) they like I couldn't tell if he was like a white guy in Asia or which would make more sense to me because apparently he had dated other Asian women before and Sometimes, like when she would teach him the etiquette of how to get into the car with your date, 
he was getting into the back seat. And I was just like, well, I'm assuming you're doing a car service then. <laughs> um, unless you. Yeah, let's back up a second okay, yes, and yes. talk about. Okay, so this is a show about etiquette. Yes. We're teaching etiquette, which oh, is okay. already a really like loaded. It's classist number one. And then <laughs> definitely race can be racist or racial, depending on how you want to say it. So let's say the first lady who wants to be classier um she's black and i'm just like okay so we had a full on with with some some of the other guests um we had a full on henry higgins the rain is in spain is falls mainly in the plane moment like literally where she teaches them to say that in order to get their diction a certain way so that was already cringy so there is that aspect. And then when it came to... So it's totally like Western etiquette, right? Like European Western style, etiquette. Like... She does acknowledge that there is different Chinese etiquette. But here's the other thing that I actually found more interesting is she also had sort of this gaggle of Chinese ladies, all older, like probably older than... She has an auntie squad. Okay, I'm back in. Yes, yes. She has an auntie squad and they all wanted to learn um, a certain type of etiquette for them to deal with more Western, I, I don't know if it's guests, clients, whatever it is, but they all want to learn. So she she goes through um, with them, like, let's say, here's what you do for white tie. Here's what you do for black tie. Um, here's how you, you know, dab your mouth on the napkin. And so actually, that's an ongoing thing. Every single episode, she comes back to the auntie squad and you get to know them. And they're all different, of course. And like, there's one named Joey, who's really funny. Um, and so that in, in and of itself is fascinating because she does acknowledge the fact that they are actually Chinese. And she says that sometimes in talking with them, she kind of felt closer to her roots because um, they gave her the Chinese perspective. And uh, I think one of the times that that really came out was when she was talking about uh, just hygiene. I'm not sure why hygiene came about, but whatever. So she's teaching them how to floss. And she, and one of the reasons why she was saying that was, uh, I know in China, you don't floss much. You use toothpicks. And I think there's a sort of a, a superstition that flossing makes the gap in your teeth wider or something like that. And she and people were like nodding. They were like, yeah, that's what we've heard or whatever. And so I was just like, oh, I did not know that. And so frankly, I would have just loved a whole show of that, you know, her with her squad, um, because I felt like the idea of like Asia, Asian Asians <laughs> um, versus diaspora Asians, I think is a fascinating topic and one that maybe not just for Asians to watch around the world, but other people to realize the differences. And um, yeah, so I found that fascinating. And if the show continues, who knows if it will or not, um, I would just like to see more of that. I'm sure they will get better clients, perhaps, um, because like some of them were very random, I felt. Um, but I don't know if you're kind of vaguely interested in it. I didn't really learn anything. Um, I'm trying to think if there was anything I learned, maybe like the different dresses for the different white tie, black tie thing. <laughs> But those are the ones that you mainly learn from the auntie squad. So like the other people who are getting help, kind of that's just more of like a makeover show, I felt like. Yeah, I feel um, like the teaching aspect seems more interesting than the actual like fixing aspect of the yeah, show. Because the fixing aspect is usually not something too beyond what maybe we already knew. Like like white guy need to learn how to use the cutlery when there's a place setting. And I was just like, you go work from the outside in. Um she did teach how you can tell how many courses you have by counting the, the cutlery in a certain order. Um stuff like that. So you know those minor things are good, but they're also incidental to the actual guests. Like I could have dealt without any of the guests. There is one guest who is a um Chinese immigrant who lives possibly in the States. I can't really tell. And, um, but she like wore a onesie that had like animal ears and a tail on it. And um, Sarah Jane Ho was not about it. <laughs> so that is the other thing is of course there was, there were so many times that she was teaching people how to wear heels and walk in them. So there's a certain level of conservatism because one of the things they kept talking about etiquette was it's not just so you know how to act around other people, but it's to make other people feel comfortable around you. And I was just like, 
Who cares about them? I mean, we all know who it's to make feel more comfortable yes. with you. Mm-hmm. It's the mm-hmm. rich white people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, right. Like, you can learn some things in there. But, um, yeah, it's it was a, just yeah. kind of, it was kind of a weird show. <laughs> yeah. The concept is just weird. Just, again, the, the setup is just so loaded with, like, our colonial histories. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's stuff that you think would be great to learn until you realize that, at some point, the people that you would need to impress with these skills are people you'll never meet or probably don't even want to impress. I mean, it's it's fine because, like, look, have I ever had to sit down at some meal with the cutlery and all that stuff? Yes. But also, it's not that hard to learn. So um, I don't know. I, I, I'm not saying it was necessarily unhelpful. I think there's some people who will like it. Um, but it was just an odd show because I don't think it knew what its focus was. Yeah. I guess my question is more, was it a good show? I, I don't think so. Like, <laughs> kind of like what I said, I feel like they were just feeling it out. And like, if if it comes back, then we will notice differences. Like, they'll get rid of something that didn't work or um, or keep something. So like, for me, I am voting Auntie Squad, keep them. Yeah. Anyway, so that is mine. Uh, what's popping with you, Marvin? All right. So I've been playing a new game called Pentiment um, that's available on Xbox and on PC. It's a um, narrative adventure game developed by Obsidian Entertainment, uh, who is well known for making a lot of really cool RPGs like the Fallout games and um, Elder Scrolls. Um, and it is a medieval murder mystery um, taking place <laughs> in the late middle okay. ages okay. right on the cusp yes. of the renaissance and you play as a an artist named andreas Mahler, who is working as an illuminator in an abbey in bavaria which i learned is an artisan who used to um copy over scriptures and illuminate them with illustrations and fancy script man marvin there's niche and then there's niche and then there's this so wait wait they do the uh illustrated not yeah they're the ones who illustrate them yeah they're like the ones that um would draw the fancy first letter of a of you know those old um medieval tomes amazing and so uh the game takes place in the 15th century um, Martin Luther is alive and well, going around preaching reformation of the church through his uh, ninety-five theses. Yes, nineteen <laughs> nineteen, the Reformation. Yes, it is a time when the European world is poised to change, um, especially with the invention of the printing press, um, threatening. Disclaimer: not only... the white printing press just got in my <laughs> True, true. Come on, Marvin. True, true. I expected my, better from you. Uh, my bad. But uh, yeah, um, the printing press is also threatening the church's scriptorium, um, which is where you work um, copying over texts. And yeah, so it is a time and place prying for the conflict that comes with a new way of life taking over the old. And so the story kicks off with a visiting baron uh, who's also a patron of the abbey um, comes and you know pisses some people off with his radical views and his eagerness to debate people on Luther and finds himself murdered. Um, The monk who is your art mentor is accused of the crime. And in the first act, you're charged with um, trying to solve the murder and clearing your mentor's name. And so the game follows your character as you run around the small town in the Bavarian mountains, talking to townspeople, um, choosing dialogue options and collecting evidence to um, solve the mystery. And so um, I played about two hours of the game so far, and I just got to the murder. Oh, God. You just got <laughs> Well, um, you start off the game kind of going around exploring the town and meeting all the townspeople who um, eventually become suspects of the crime. And, you know, the way I play games, I like to explore every nook and cranny. So I spend a lot of time just talking to everybody, getting a lay of the land, and um, everyone's really well written. The game is presented in a very beautiful way. Um, it the graphics are the graphics are based on like old late medieval texts. So all the characters and all the backgrounds and all the texts are all illustrated in that style, and it just looks really good. Um, you know, characters have different scripts depending on uh, what you think their literacy is, and the game is doing a lot of interesting things, especially setting up um, the world because you know life is hard. 
back in the late Middle Ages. During the Reformation. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a great time. Yeah, and this is a town that, you know, much like Knives Out, um, the game is already setting up class divides within this town that you're staying in uh, between the townspeople and the abbey that governs it pretty much and levies taxes and laws and is trying to stamp out, you know, their pagan beliefs. And, um, you know, there's already some tension, some class tension um, bubbling beneath the surface. Um, so um, I've been enjoying the game so far. Uh, fair warning, it is a reading game, um, kind of more visual novel than action game. So if you're not down with a lot of text in your game, um, you might not have as much fun. But in terms of a cool historical murder mystery, it's been going really well. And I have been enjoying playing my character because you get to pick their um, history and their characteristics and their education. And I've been enjoying playing my character as a um, hedonistic, logical, uh, pretty much Renaissance man ahead of his time before the Renaissance even hits. And also as like a rake who literally just flirts with everyone he sees, um, especially all the nuns at the Abbey. And like I mentioned, this game definitely made me um, have to look up things about Europe and European history, um, like where the hell Basel is. In Switzerland? Yeah, because that's where my character spent his journeyman days, hoeing around in Switzerland. Oh, if you want to take medieval history, call me anytime. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I'm going to keep at it. The game is about, I think, 12 to 20 hours, depending on how thorough you get. And I guess I'll update you all on my progress as we go along. Um, but that's what's popping for me. Uh, before we get to Christmas at the Golden Dragon, um, let's check in one final time with our Go Asian Great Bridge Bake Off 2022 edition. Our where, girl did, uh, it. She did it. She did it. Our girl Shabira did it. I'm very glad, first of all, that it wasn't close because there are some years where I'm just like, they all did pretty well. Um, but also because it wasn't close, it was fairly lackluster I mean, as a finale. <laughs> this was one of those final challenges where they went big and gave them a big challenge, but didn't pause to think mm -hmm. whether or not they could do that challenge. Because none of them that really... that bread shit looked disgusting. Like, I'm sorry. Do you want soggy, cold bread for dessert with a jelly center? Oh yeah, that technical. I that did not look appetizing at all. Even the actual one looked gross. Yeah, the it's technical soaked awful. white bread. You know, I think what happened was Paul and Prue heard us complaining about how. They were making them do tacos <laughs> and spring rolls and say, fine, you want British desserts? You want European desserts? We'll give you European desserts. And they give us the whitest thing ever made. Soaked, cold fruit bread. Ugh. Oh, <laughs> it looked like something I would make just randomly, like without a recipe. No. It's like I have bread. I have whatever. You would Let make me put that, some but juice you, on that, that's it. That's something like a like, yeah. That's something like yeah, your I five would, year old I makes would. after dinner with the leftover food on his plate. Oh, <laughs> and that's why I hate children. Oh my god! But you know what? She won. Yeah. Best case scenario for what's kind of a lackluster season, but it is what it is, and we can forget about this until yeah, as next long year. as there. As long as there wasn't an actual crime for who won, I'm <laughs> fine. This whole season was weird, but at least the right person. Do won. we think they're going to have like a soul searching after this season, realizing no. all the food crimes that they No, did? absolutely no. not. That would require self-awareness. They don't care what the Yanks think. Well, I guess that's a wrap on Go Asian Great British Bake Off 2022 edition. Uh, we'll be back again sometime next year to cover the upcoming season of Top Chef. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're diving into Christmas film season. Uh, we're, kicking off Christmas, we're kicking off Christmas film season with our discussion of the Hallmark Christmas movie, Christmas at the Golden Dragon. Stick around. podcast Asians in Baseball alongside Naomi Ko and Scott Okamoto. Asians in Baseball is exactly what it sounds like, a podcast about the Asian and Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans in Major League Baseball. 
Every week, we break down the highlights of what's going on with Asians in baseball and then take a deeper dive into the Asian and Asian Americans past and present who have shaped baseball as it is today. Whether you're Kim Ang's number one fan or you've never even heard of Hideo Nomo, we've got something for everyone, especially for the Shohei Otani stands. Maybe too much for the Shohei Otani stands. Listen to Asians in Baseball wherever you get podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Hello, I'm Phil Yu, and I'm the host of All the Asians on Star Trek, the podcast in which I interview all the Asians on Star Trek. I'm talking to actors, writers, directors, stunt people, background extras. You know, all the Asians on Star Trek. Find out more at alltheasiansonstartrek.com. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Live long and prosper. And welcome back to the Good Pop Culture Club. On this episode, we're taking a look at the Hallmark Christmas film, Christmas at the Golden Dragon, starring Kara Wang and Osric Chow as two siblings who have to deal with their parents' surprise announcement that they're closing the family Chinese restaurant in Wichita, Kansas. Um, the film also follows the lives of several patrons of the restaurant who also have tangential relationships with each other and... Um, all of them are also going through their own crises, related and unrelated, with the closing of their beloved um, community Chinese restaurant. And so, you know, last year we watched A List of a Lifetime, which was my first Lifetime movie. Um, like I mentioned, this is my first Hallmark movie and Hallmark Christmas movie. And I got to say, um, I have some questions. Well, uh, first of all, I just do want to address a couple things. Maybe one is that this was not necessarily the most typical Hallmark movie um, because usually it is a sort of a typical rom-com where there's a main uh, like male and female character who eventually have to fall in love and then some of the maybe there's one other romantic couples like that's a supporting act Um, usually they do have to save something like a poinsettia farm or uh, or some big city person needs to like learn something, but this one actually ended up being more of a community ensemble piece, um, and I think the reason why was to you know show why this Chinese restaurant was so important to the community at large because the Chinese restaurant is fully American, right? It's like, and I think that's that in and of itself was a smart move, except for the fact that I don't didn't love all the ensemble uh, storylines. So this was no love actually. So yeah, I mean, so it starts off with the trappings of a city girl goes home to small town to find love and life affirmation. But it kind of doesn't do that because this city girl is already in a committed loving relationship. Um, And yeah, this film does have I want to say five to six co-current storylines. And it definitely <laughs> yes. gave Love Actually vibes in terms of like, they're all interconnected somehow and they all coincidentally, like it's like a game of six degrees of Kevin Bacon with each of these, right? They all are connected to each other by like certain people or things yes. or places. And they're, they're all connected by this um, Chinese restaurant. Um, I want to go back just to... yes. My most basic question, which is, which you've already kind of answered, which is, is this how these movies usually are? No, no. Yeah. So here's the thing. Lifetime and Hallmark movies actually aren't terribly different. For a while, there were even studios that made both. And um, so like if you saw something like from Mar Vista Entertainment, you knew it was kind of that very cranked out formulaic um, Christmas movie. In fact... Mar Vista, I think, even made The Christmas Prince that's on Netflix. Mm. But what changed, uh, what made them different was the networks. So you could still have a Mar Vista Entertainment movie made for Hallmark several years ago where it would be the whitest of the white, bland, bland, bland. They kiss maybe at the end, like a like one second. But then you would still, on Lifetime, get a Mar Vista Entertainment movie that was 
little bit racier, like maybe they kissed throughout and then they Ooh. were pe- they were people of color. Um, and it was had maybe a little bit spicier dialogue. So that for me, this um, the new Hallmark, which is now underneath uh, under new leadership of a black woman, Wanya Lucas, who replaced the old guard of Bill Abbott, which we will get to him <laughs> in a second. Um, so in the last year or so, she's kind of like taken a, taken the reins and made it more multicultural, which is kind of what you see here. Um, has the quality improved? It's inconsistent because Hallmark makes, what, upwards of 50 Christmas movies a year? So the ones that you don't get before Thanksgiving aren't always the best. So um, like I would actually highly recommend one uh, this coming Sunday called um i think it's christmas at rockefeller center or something like that or a spectacular whatever uh christmas spectacular or something basically a woman who who in the 50s or 60s who runs away to be a rocket that's a a really fun one <laughs> um and also you can see the money on the screen for that well, one i guess they had to they also paid real rockets so this one not that great well i mean the um, one that they were advertising throughout this entire like at least mm-hmm. the the showing that i caught on hallmark channel with uh, one of the sister sister twins, looked way more fun than, than yeah. the movie I was watching. Yeah, usually Tia Maori is the one who uh, is in these films, and yeah, usually they save the really f- more fun plots for their bigger names. So, hate to say it, and we will we will talk about her uh, soon, but Candace Cameron Bure, who was previously the queen of Hallmark Christmas movies, um, she often got the better movies. And would only have to do one per Christmas. Whereas some some of these people, you're like, I thought I saw him somewhere else. They recycled him? Uh, I, mean, so. I mean, yeah, we can kind of talk about her. Because this was a thought I was mm-hmm. having while watching this film. Which is, she left because she wasn't happy that Hallmark was making movies. Um, I don't know if she actually said it out loud. She said... So, but she's like... She, yeah. But it's assumed that she wasn't happy with the fact that Hallmark... Mm-hmm was producing well let's back it up so when i said that wanya lucas replaced bill abbott bill abbott went to another network called great american family and he started up basically hallmark 2.0 there so they're doing christmas and whatever and then they got her so and and part of the deal with her is to give her executive producer credit and and power so she is now helping to call the shots but basically it, it is bill abbott uh, first of all, who's who's doing that? And there were possible Trumpy ties to the funding for this network. <laughs> oh no! Uh, but it was it was it wasn't Trump himself, but someone who is like had been related to some business venture he had done. Um, anyway, so because of under that sort of like uh, the guise of this guy who abandoned Hallmark to go to this channel. Well, actually, he got ousted. So yeah, she went, and he, he actually pulled not just her but a lot of other Hallmark stars over to their side. So some of them are no loss, like Candace Cameron, <laughs> uh, Lori Laughlin. Oh, oh, oh God. Right. Yeah. But you know who I'm disappointed in? Danica McKellar. Winnie, no. Right. She's the math lady. Um, how did? Why did she jump ship to go to them? I don't know. But I'm keeping a list of all the people who left because I was like, you are now in my bad books. Yeah, because um, like the language that I heard was that they're going to make films that support traditional family yeah. values. Yeah. And this film had a lot of that in it. I mean, a, a main plot point in this film is valorizing this mom who gave up her career to raise a family. So it wasn't that. Some... An, a, an act, a reporter asked her if there will be same-sex relationships and marriage because uh, that is, of course, a new big thing for Hallmark because it's going to have its first uh, Christmas movie with a leads being, you know, gay uh, versus they've always been in the supporting role. And so they asked her, is there going to be same-sex relationships on these movies? And she's like, we are going to focus on traditional marriage. And so those were the two words, traditional oh. marriage. And that's when everyone's like, what <laughs> that means yeah, you hate gay she people. said the quiet yeah. part out yes <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah so that's what's happening but here's the other thing great american family um it's pay cable so you have to actually subscribe to it 
And I I can't see people getting, you know, who are already paying for their basic cable package, not watching Lifetime and Hallmark movies that are basically, you know, free because they already paid for them. Um, and, and going to this network they can't even find and paying extra just f- to see Candace Cameron? Nah. Eh. I mean, it's quality yeah. filmmaking. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) you know, Um. so so I yeah, but in general, I've been kind of like on the uh, war on Christmas movies beat for several years now. Um, So that's why I'm aware, like I did report on the fact that it was very white a few years ago and it was very straight a few years ago. And so they definitely are working on that. But again, because they're cranking out 50 plus movies, not everyone's going to be a winner. Yeah. Um. Jess, I'm curious, what's your history with Hallmark movies? I I honestly didn't watch them too much as a child because I thought they were lame and cheesy. And then I think around the same time I got into my horny romance books, I was like, this is very enjoyable. And I'm not, you know, like, you know, I had the internal conversation about what class and, you know, taste is. And then I think especially, though, for my generation, it's really the Netflix Christmas movies Mm -hmm. that took that baseline and then just like shot it even more insane. Right. Like. Like the success of Christmas Prince and the Princess Switch, like I think has even pushed like the concepts what of what Hallmark and mm-hmm. Lifetime are willing to do. They can see like the like you can go very campy, you can lean into that, um, and and you know people will like. No one's coming here to see a Oscar winning film. You're coming yeah. here for a Christmas movie. Um, but I was watching the other one. Uh, I was watching the Lindsay Lohan one the other day mm-hmm. with my sister. And we were both like not that entertained with it. We could talk about yeah. that another time. Like we didn't think it was very good. But but uh, my fiance, Ray Ray, just like sat down and just like absentmindedly started watching. And he's like, oh, my God. Like what happens? Like do they end up together? I'm like, <laughs> my dude. Yes, it is a Christmas movie. They do, in fact, end up together. But I think he's like very traumatized because the same thing happened with Prince and me and they don't end up together. Sort um, of, like, yes. Sort of, you know, like it's not yeah. as traditional of a happy mm-hmm. ending. Yes, yeah. So so he's like, I'm just like, he's like, I don't know. I don't watch. I was like, yes, they get back together. Townspeople come together to save X, Y, Z. No, wait, it's yes. a snow. Uh, it's an inn. Yeah, it's a it's lodge. A, yeah. yeah, lodge. Ski lodge, that's right. Right. Um, so, But you know what? That one is actually better than this one so, right yeah anything. so i think that's my that was the main thing that i expected but didn't get is i expected it to be a rom-com or at least have rom-com trappings and it really doesn't it's the community coming together part without the will they won't they rom-com yeah. tension. and that was disappointing for sure and you know instead we get a script that's very very busy this film had a lot of talking do they usually have this much talking in these films? No, there was so much exposition. But also, it's like, like you had mentioned, it was like Love Actually, but it's like Love Actually without the humor <laughs> and without the quirkiness. And I am not a Love Actually apologist. I've actually trashed many plots of it. But at least each of them were memorable. <laughs> you know, <laughs> even in its like badness, whereas this one is kind of like, uh, yeah. A blandness all around. Yeah, I mean, okay, the, the team behind it, the director, David Eistrasser, is, this is just his thing. He makes like four or five of these a year. So he's, yeah. I don't think he's necessarily phoning it in. And while I'm sure he can make a competent um, Christmas movie, I just don't know if he was the right guy um, for this particular movie, especially because of all the cultural nuance that you kind of want in a film starring Asian Americans about an Asian family. And the film also has two writers. One is Melinda Bissmeyer, who really only has one other credit on IMDb, which is an episode for a TV series in 2012. So maybe this is like her first major writing role that's, you know, being aired. Um, But the other co-writer is Emily Ting, who those of us in the Asian American film world know as a pretty competent screenwriter who's written films like Go Back to China and It's Already Tomorrow in Hong Kong, starring Jamie Chung, which I actually liked quite a bit. And so I wonder um, what her role was in this script. Like, was she 
was she co-writing from the start or was it something like um, what happened in Crazy Rich Asians where she was brought in to, you know, make sure it was... Um, it was culturally... <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, that's probably the case. Um, it just... You know what the main thing with the script is, is the characters are constantly, especially the Asian characters working in this Chinese restaurant, are constantly explaining culture. Mm-hmm. It's like, have you ever heard of like the explanatory comma? It's like a term we have in podcasts. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's also in the yeah. written word, but it's basically when you pause to explain a term you just brought up, right? Um it's an issue in, especially in like people of color reporting, because when people of color report on cultural things, they're often told constantly by editors to explain everything because you have to yeah. assume that your reader has no idea what you're talking about, right? Yeah, such as pho, <laughs> the most popular soup noodle uh, dish made in Vietnam, um, is now become popular in the U.S. Yes, that's an explanatory <laughs> comma. And this film was 50% explanatory comma, like exposition. At least that's and, what and it felt that's like. The thing- there wasn't even that much Chinese stuff in there. That's the weird part of it. I think she was just explaining like her business, the family's business. But yeah, sh- uh, sorry, the main character, Kara Wang- Wang's character, Romy. Uh, I'm also Wong's just character. like, there's nothing more American than the Chinese restaurant. There's literally one and every it's- corner in like any city in the United States, big or small. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, film, this is the first very dish American Chinese present. You know how like. A touchstone for Asian American <laughs> yes. um, film are the food scenes. Like we love our food porn, and any, uh, especially re- films taking place in restaurants or in scenes with restaurants or family tables. We love like the spread of like amazing looking food, and mm-hmm. you know, I guess this is how you know that this isn't a film made by an Asian or Asian American director because. The food isn't really given much chance to shine. Like the first dish you see in the restaurant mm-hmm. is just like a plain old mushu pork, which, you know, isn't real dish in Chinese cooking. But there's like the Americanized version that we were used to. And it just like it's just there on the plate and it doesn't look appetizing and just looks kind of flat and generic and... You know, this kind of thing just wouldn't have happened if we had an Asian director. Well, that was the disappointing thing because I, here's the thing. I went into this not caring about plot, right? Um, I just figured it would be Christmassy and whatever. And even it, I felt like that fell flat. Yeah, but I, I didn't did really come w- in expecting much from the plot neither. But I did expect but, something that yeah, was but like I did cozy wa- and just a nice comfort watch, you know? Well, well, no, literally I wanted more food, like better <laughs> food scenes discussions i know this isn't chef table chef's table david gilb is not going to make the food porn on hallmark channel but at the same time i was like how can you just talk about the food and not actually really get them to engage and and with the food and really like i don't know show it really in a fun way it was just bizarre to me like you're talking about a restaurant and (laughs) i barely felt like i watched a restaurant movie so that was my probably my disappointment there um we did go to restaurants in the movie but i felt like it was just incidental it could have been any any other business that they were trying to save yeah and it's a bummer because i know ozark and kara are great actors. I've seen them. They're do- very good. Kara is a fantastic actor. This is like a very random thing to bring up. But have you seen her Diva Cup commercial? <laughs> I know I haven't, but now I need to go to YouTube. I got a series of targeted ads where she is just like, it's it's like an extended ad for like a Diva Cup. And I'm just like, oh my God, you are incredibly engaging. Like, she's just sitting there talking. It was like a pre-YouTube video ad. I'm like, I, and I, I knew her at that point. And then I, re- I remember somebody on Twitter, I think it was like Jenny, Jenny Yang was like, who is this person? Like, she's really good. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. she's very good. So I'm going to say the words Diva Cup. And now all my devices will bring that up in my <laughs> algorithm. Uh, so I will start seeing these ads. And also, I love Osric. Like, I yes. followed. I followed his career everywhere, and he's actually he is charming here, but he's just not given much to do. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I know the skill level of, of at least the t- these two leads, and I know they have yes. the potential to like rise above 
the script that they're given, but it's just I, I, too much to overcome. I don't know. Like, yeah, well, there are too many characters, right? And so, and they, and they were only given like these very narrow character beats that they yeah. could do. I also would have to say, like, I think Osric, you know, because it, Christmas movies are easy money. He he's never been the lead of one of these that I can remember, which is weird. But I wonder if he just does it because. You know, he gets the extra paycheck and he saves his actual acting time for I other projects. I think it's because they all shoot in Canada and so yeah. he can stay home. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I agree that like that's why I always look forward to these movies because I can see my Canadian friends. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm but. sure it's like a solid like seasonal gig, right? For for these actors to be oh, in these sure. films. And, but, you know, you Osric know was given the rom-com storyline. It's just I wish... Yeah, I wish yeah. if you were going to do that, just make him the focus. We did not need, and we can speculate all we want how much workshopping or how much like notes um, they were given. Because honestly, like if they had the film surrounding these two siblings and their like parallel relationship adventures, that would have been a way stronger movie and not have like these other literally like tens of white side characters <laughs> clogging up the runtime. Yeah, there was one not so bad one where the other there was a delivery guy named Miguel who I actually kind of liked, um, but uh, he was running around and clearly because his name is Miguel, he's not a white guy. But um, I I do feel like it was like I don't know five plots too many <laughs> or something like that, and and we could have gotten better Osric stuff because honestly, despite him just being charming because it's he is who he is, his character was kind of crap. <laughs> like he stood up a date for prom. Okay. And uh, I, yeah. basically he had already graduated, gone to college and he stood up like his, his girlfriend or whatever, or friend uh, for prom while she was still like a senior. And then he was just like, Oh, I thought maybe you didn't, uh, you just pity asked me. And I was just like, why wouldn't you just tell her no then instead of just standing her up? And then later, sorry, this is not really a spoiler, but you know, he makes a bit, he makes it up to her with a grand gesture. And he's like, I'll see you there at the restaurant on Christmas and wear the dress I didn't get to see. And I was just like, she might not Why fit the fuck prom dress. Come? I know. Fuck <laughs> back, dude. Yeah. They even like have her say, I'm surprised I fit in this dress. And I was like, no, no, you wouldn't have because no one you were not as skinny as you were in senior year prom. And then, ever. yeah, yeah, unless a major life trauma happened to you, I swear to God. <sighs> yeah. And Anyways. I mean, so I mean, I don't I don't think people care. It's a Hallmark movie. You know yeah, what you're getting into. It's not a spoiler. Um, I mean, there's clearly. So one of the plot points is he's forced to stand, stand her up again. <laughs> is that the correct verbiage? Yes. Um, yeah, sure. Because. Um, his father needs him to work at the restaurant because it's too busy. And I was thinking, there's no way an Asian father would prevent his grown adult Asian son from going on a date because he needed help at the restaurant. Well, he also like couldn't text her that he was not, I mean, that he was standing her up because his dad took away his phone. And I was like, you are an adult at this point. You just get your phone back. <laughs> to be honest, that is actually pretty like that's a that's a pretty good like Asian American <laughs> dilemma to have, right? Like having parents still run your life as an adult. Well, there is that, especially if you, I guess, still work for them, which is a, a rough place to be. But <laughs> so, but he, yeah. you know, he he's passionate about food. I mean, there are parts of this film that I did have a chuckle, and there are parts of the film that like worked and i suspect these are all the parts that probably emily had a hand in to like make sure that they capture some aspect of asian americanness it yeah and here's the funny thing i've actually seen other hallmark films with an asian lead that had better content asian content that is or at least touches like obviously it's not going to be asian uh capital asian all the way through but it still had Far better content. Um, we should actually discuss that one scene. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which was... Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I mean, so this was the part where I felt betrayed by the film. Which is... So there's a scene where Kara... So actually, let's roll back. So uh, Kara's character, Romy, her whole plot line um, is... Growing up, uh, Romy spent every Christmas at the Chinese restaurant uh, because her parents had to work. And so she never experienced like a classic Christmas as depicted in the movies or homework TV shows. 
And so she has this opportunity to go to Vermont with her boyfriend to spend Christmas with his family. And she gets super excited for her first white Christmas. And it turns out that his family doesn't really celebrate Christmas traditionally neither. Uh, And so to accommodate her wishes, they... Um, go along with her as she attempts to do all the classic Christmassy things like building a gingerbread house and going caroling, all of which fail spectacularly. And I mean, these are the Christmas shenanigans that I was expecting from a Hallmark Christmas movie. And um, they yeah, actually really that was maybe me. a smart, smart thing, which they could have uh, maybe handled a little bit better. But I think I was glad that they did show that. Like, no, what you what you think Christmas is um, all about isn't. Like yeah, it's kind of a almost self aware thing for Hallmark to be mm-hmm. <laughs> showing on its yeah. own channel, right? Um, and then it culminates in, oh, we always have Christmas dinner at our favorite restaurant. And can you guess where they go for Christmas dinner? Jess, a Chinese, a Jewish deli. No. Chinese restaurant. Chinese restaurant. Well, like the Chinese thing is, we're supposed to go to a Jewish deli, right? Uh, like equivalent exchange, um, karmatic balance. Well, I mean, these guys, I don't. Yeah, these they're not actually Chinese. They're white, so they go to Chinese restaurant. Um, yeah, they're white and, and and. Oh yes, they go to the Chinese. They go to the Chinese restaurants to the point where someone wrote an article in the L.A. Times about how like it's so bad for Chinese restaurants during Christmas. Like some of them are just like it's not worth it. We're gonna close to get a Chinese restaurant to be like it ain't worth it. <laughs> do you know how bad you have to be? Yeah, so they go to this Chinese. Yeah, so there's this scene, and it's bad. Yeah, and it is bad. It's crazy. <laughs> So the scene that we're we've been working our way to for the last ten minutes is um, the family orders, you know, your typical Americanized Chinese food dishes: orange chicken, chow mein, mushu pork, beef with broccoli, beef and broccoli, Mongolian beef. And then the waiter turns to uh, another waiter and makes fun of the family in Mandarin about ordering fake Chinese dishes and. And to just give him whatever. And so Kara or Romy turns around and puts him on blast, uh, basically saying, don't belittle my family, okay? Like Primus calls them out and she becomes a hero of the table. And my feeling during that scene was, did she just narc out the waitstaff? Well, no, she said it in Chinese. Yeah. So the family doesn't understand her. <laughs> they just think that she's speaking to her people. Um, but she does call him out saying like, respect these people because they actually came here for me because I actually think their favorite restaurant was actually another place and they decided to change it because they they, were, they were going to the Swan and I don't think the Swan is the name of the Chinese restaurant. I thought it was. I was reading that the Swan oh. was a Chinese restaurant. Oh, well, maybe it is then. I, I have to say I didn't watch it that closely. <laughs> um, but, but yes, she did say they came here to make me comfortable. And so, you know, I'm not going to let you treat them badly or something or like have some respect. And so I was just like, weird. Um, (laughs) It didn't sit right. Um, A, because there's, I mean, I'm pretty sure if they were to make fun of that family in Chinese, it would have been the kitchen because you don't really, you know, you don't say that in front of customers. I would have believed it more if it was a table next to them or talking shit, right? Here's the thing. uh, The one thing that did, feel right to me was when they called it fake Chinese food. <laughs> oh, that was the only time they acknowledged uh, this as fake Chinese food, which... Yeah, and 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 for me, I think... And they said that because also her back was to them, so they didn't know she was at the table. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I was just like... I felt like if she wanted to say something, like, let's say, not give them crap, um, crap food, she could have just been like, hey, th- these are like my new in-laws or whatever. Um, I just hope you treat them well. Like we, we, they still like the food here or whatever it is. But even she, like her family's restaurant serves American Chinese food, right? So she can say something about that because as much as like we know the difference between American Chinese food and other, you know, Chinese restaurant food, um, I don't think I... I look down upon American Chinese food necessarily. I just don't crave it like other people do. But like it's the whole point of this movie is that the Chinese restaurant is as American as it can be. So I think that was an odd moment where I was just like, well, if your point was that this is like an American tradition, then maybe she should have defended it in that way and not saying like 
respect my family. I don't know. It was just yeah. a very weird moment for me where I was just like, I kind of like that you said it was fake Chinese food, but I also think that she should have called that part out. Hey, I serve this too. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it should have had, like, food should have played a central role in this restaurant-based film, and it didn't. And I think that's just a missed opportunity. I, th- it, I think, it done more. yeah, again, it could have done more with less right because Less we, did, we didn't even sure. talk about the single dad who has to take care of his two daughters and build up their self-esteem who's also a patron of this restaurant or the the single professional like girl boss woman who is trying to get pregnant um, through IVF and is dealing with the death of her father <laughs> both this her and her mother lot. also patrons of this Chinese and, restaurant. And Girl Boss interviews Miguel, the delivery guy, for it. Yeah, looks, job. and looks down on him because he doesn't have a traditional resume, um, not knowing that he is the same <laughs> guy who helped his mother fix her lamp in there on her porch. Yeah, there's a lot. Also, of there's a elderly black man who just had a stroke who <laughs> yeah, also like, attended. What was the, like? I didn't even know what he was doing around. And uh, and here's the best part, anyway. Jess. At the end, they all get paired up together. This this is a lot. I see where they're trying to do the love actually thing. Yeah. Love actually is like it's one of my favorite movies, but I recognize like it's not a good movie. There are parts that are good and there are very charming moments. Yes, and I think it's it's also because of the caliber of people yes. you have in there. And I'm not saying these actors, you know, including our friends Karen Osric are not talented, but man, they they sure try to do a lot for a Hallmark movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also Richard Curtis, I really, you know, do enjoy a lot of what he, he does. So, yeah, this one is no love, actually. I think they try to do it. Like, after Love, actually, all these copycat films try to do the mega ensemble type movies. But if you're going to pull that off for a Hallmark film, you need to make sure every single plot point um, an actor is like living up to at least the charming and quirk that you need to like hold their own you know against all these other plots and all of them are very bland yeah it really feels like this is like five Hallmark movies put into one um, but all five were kind of mid and what's sad is you can see the bones of a pretty solid Hallmark movie if they had just, you know, stuck to the main characters within this Chinese restaurant, you know, the two siblings played by Osric and Kara, and built a film around their two journeys and maybe spend a little bit more time on the script to make it sound a little bit more confident. Like, it really did sound like someone in the chain of command, whether the filmmakers or the writers or the executive producers, didn't have confidence in a Asian-led film that told an Asian-American story. Like, they were worried that it wouldn't connect to, I guess, middle America. And you ended up with something that just didn't live up to the sum of its parts. It's like you have all the elements of the fried rice, but you don't know how to put it together in a nice way. Nice. I see what you did there. (laughs) It's like you put in... You put in mayonnaise. You put in fresh rice. yeah. Yeah, you put in fresh rice. Oh, oh and it's all clumpy. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Ugh. yeah. Anyway. Anyways. So. All right. So I guess that brings us to our last question, which is, is Christmas at the Golden Dragon good pop? No. Um, I'm pretty lenient when it comes to Christmas films. Like, even though I will acknowledge, let's say, that Lindsay Lohan one was lesser than what I wanted, it's still better than this movie. Oof. Um, but I will also now that it's going to be Thanksgiving soon, we'll have uh, higher expectations from other films that are coming out for Christmas. Um, and I believe there's some other Asian ones or at least Asian-led ones out there. So I might check those out because I've definitely seen some that are decent. Um, but yeah, this is not it. Sorry. <laughs> Skip this one for sure. Yikes. Marvin. Yeah, I also, I, I, I can't. In good conscience. I enjoy Kara Wang and Osric Chow in everything that they do. And, you know, I applaud them for getting their Hallmark check for the year. Um, hopefully <laughs> they buy something really nice with it. But I, I just can't. This, even as like a film to like put on the background, I can't recommend this because it's just rough. I do have to say it inspires me to finally get my ass in gear and just like just write my Christmas movie. <laughs> like it has to be better than some of these, you know. Um, yeah yeah well 
that's our discussion of Christmas at the Golden Dragon. Um, it's available on VOD right now from Hallmark, and as well as I'm sure it'll be playing throughout the Christmas season. If you happen to catch on TV, you know, you can do worse, but you can probably also do better. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, since you guys have confirmed that this is not typical of a Hallmark Christmas movie, um, I am on board to watching one of the other ones that are coming down the pike. But um, Yeah, I'll, I'll check them out. <laughs> but I think there was one like last year that I liked that was like Ghosts of Boyfriends Past, that, which is kind of interesting. Um, I mean, there's a T.S. Sarkar one on HBO Max that looks pretty There's decent. the Jessica Van one where she yes. plays a movie director of Christmas movies named Jessica. Oh, yeah. I was going to check that one out. Um, yeah, there's so there's there's other ones out there. This just wasn't yeah. the one and, that hit. I mean, it's a good sign, or at least it's a sign of progress that we can even say this is not the only one we have this year, right? Yes, yes. I think that's a. Good- it was just the one we had hopes for because of the title and the restaurant. Yeah, there were so many keywords that were just exactly our jam, and so I think that's why we were just. At least I was especially disappointed that just didn't live up to the potential but uh you know you win some you lose some i guess and you know once in a while we do we do watch some bad pop on this show we have in the past yeah (laughs) this is also probably not the worst movie that we've uh panned (laughs) i know which one that one is (laughs) does have the word ghosts in it yes it has the word ghosts in it It also had asians in it (laughs) Uh, all right well that'll do it for this episode of the good pop culture club um, Jess Han, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, if people want to find out more of your thoughts, where can where can they find you nowadays? Still on Twitter for now. Just your tweets. Ditto, and I am at Anonymous. You can find me at Marvin. You can find our show at Good Pop Club. We are a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective. Um, check out our fellow Asian American hosted podcasts by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. And yeah, we'll see you next week for our monthly Do We Want This News Roundup. Uh, But until then, again, happy Thanksgiving and we'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye, Happy Thanksgiving. Bye. Brian, did you go to Saturday school as a kid? I sure did. Did you? Totally. Well, at our podcast, Saturday School, we don't teach a language, but we pass along the culture that we do know. And that's Asian American pop culture. Ada is a journalist, and I'm a professor and film festival programmer. We've watched a lot of great Asian American movies, and we want you to watch them too. Come listen to us as we look back at the pioneering films that have led us to today. 